Welcome to the Authentic Sales Leader Podcast, where we bring on exceptional sales leaders to dig into their stories, experiences, get their advice, and most importantly, learn what it means to them to be an authentic sales leader. I'm your host, Colin Mitchell, and I suggest that you grab a notebook and a pen as every episode is packed with their wisdom and knowledge. All right, welcome to authentic sales leader. Very excited today to have Mark Casaglo on the show. Mark, as a teenager, started watching videos in the back of a storeroom on a seven inch black and white TV to learn how to sell shoes and was employee number one at Outreach and now the chief revenue officer at Catalyst Software. Uh, we're going to get into his story and also get his take on what it takes to be an authentic sales leader. Mark, welcome to the show. What's up? I'm authentically honored to be on here, Colin. It's an honor to have you on. I know that we're going to, you know, uh, get into some good stuff and, and get into your story, but just give people a little bit of context here of, you know, what's, what's your sales story and, and what led you into sales leadership? Yeah, so I am a, a habitual lifetime a salesperson. I, the, the rumor is, according to my parents, that, uh, I started selling when I was uh, seven years old on vacation with my uh, my parents at my uncle's beach house in Delaware, where his children were older. And I took all the toys mm. that I didn't want to play with that were old, put them in a wagon and went door to door and tried to swap them with the neighbors for toys that were more interesting to me. So uh, uh, that's where it all started. You know, uh, got really lucky, had an awesome uh, first outside sales job to start my career, moved into sales leadership when I got tired of developing accounts and wanted to develop people. And then I've, uh, you know, been doing the sales leadership thing for, oh, probably like 15, 16 years now. Wow. So clearly sales is in your blood, uh, you know, pulling around your wagon, uh, trying to sell your, sell your toys for, for new toys. Uh, I mean, where did I, I just can't even imagine how you know how how old were you and, and and where you came up with that as a good idea? I don't know. They, I was seven years old is 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 what my mom okay, yeah. tells me, but uh, I don't remember it at all. Uh, it's one of those stories though that where like I think I can remember it, but I know I'm just I'm just like making a memory up. Yeah, yeah. You're like, <laughs> it sounds good. I'm gonna I'm gonna wear wear That's that right. on the sleeve for sure. Yeah. All, all all good salespeople I think start on knocking doors. You just started earlier than than most. That's right. <laughs> if you worked at Cutco, you you are a special kind of salesperson, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I I wish you know selling Cutco or knocking on doors was part of my story because. Uh, I've talked to a lot of people that got their, you know, cut their teeth in selling Cutco <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, have gone, gone on to do some great things. But you, you mentioned something briefly, you know, you said you were lucky enough to get a first outside sales job. What was that? What were you selling and, and, and why did you frame it in that way? Yeah. So I had been working for a friend of the family for probably three or four years, run, helping run his small business, which is this really weird, interesting business in State College, Pennsylvania, which is where Penn State is, and it's called Nittany Notes. And so we would hire uh, the smart students to type and organize the notes they took in class to sell to the not as smart students. And, and actually, that's not quite true. We, we sold it to smart and, and non-smart students. Like, it was just another way to study. And, you know, this was before professors did PowerPoint slides a lot of times in classes. So the only way to get the notes was to 
was to go or to buy them from Nittany Notes. After after I had my second kid, I was like, I can't live on what this dude is paying me. (laughs) And the job I was doing wasn't valuable enough to pay me enough. So he was an awesome guy. And he's like, hey, Mark, he's like, it's not probably time for us to part ways. He's like, but take your time. Like you can stay as long as you want. He's like, I'll find somebody in. You can train them to replace me, but like, you know, find a job. And I got, ended up getting called by a recruiter that was recruiting for a company called Great American, a fundraising company. So Colin, I don't know if you ever sold magazines in school or candy bars or cookie dough or, you know, Christmas stuff. Well, I was the dude that would go to your school and your PTO or your coach, your band director, whoever, and convince them to use my company to supply the goods for the fundraiser. Then I would usually come back and, you know, do a big kickoff session with the kids and get them excited about why they were selling and what they could get if they could sell. And and then I would uh, fulfill the orders and deliver the prizes and it was this uh, really interesting job. It was a 100% commission sales job after my first year where I definitely uh, negotiated $22,000 of guaranteed salary. Uh, and after that, it was 100% commission. And that's where I really learned how to sell, sell or die. You know, and I had two kids, another one on the way. And so I was lucky enough to get a really great, cool, creative, fun job at a company that was part of a conglomerate of hardcore sales. This is how you do sales companies. And then I had some really cool bosses and mentors at that job that took me under the wing and taught me a ton. So that's why I say I'm lucky is I could have gotten put at some bad company where I didn't learn how to sell correctly. I really got lucky that I was put at a cool company with lots of cool people. That was a really fun job. Um, so I'm curious, you know, you, you mentioned that you had some great, you know, great leaders in that organization. What are some things that you picked up early on there from those leaders that you had that have kind of molded yourself as a leader? Yeah, so I um, I worked for a guy named Dick Bernhardt, and he was my direct manager, and he had quite a few uh, reps, and then he was a kind of a player coach. He also had to sell. That was his primary source, and he got kind of an overlay of management that he could do, and he was expected to spend you know so much time with you in the field and stuff. And uh, Dick was a teacher and a principal prior to taking this fundraising job, which you know obviously lended itself to him understanding the needs of schools and whatnot. And, but, uh, because Dick was such a great teacher in his own life, he was a great teacher as a sales leader. And so, you know, we would, you know, he would come up and spend time with me. We had diagnosed calls. We'd talk about it. You know, I kind of had a lot of in, in college, I'd had a couple sales jobs and I think I really understood the basic mechanics of it. And, my personality lended itself to like a little more authentic sales than I think most people have. And, and he just really kind of leaned in and like challenged me and taught me like, Hey, listen, man, like your job in the morning is to wake up with a plan. And your plan is, is I'm going to these eight schools and you don't turn the car around until you go all eight schools and you don't go to the schools unless you kind of know who you want to go talk to and what you want to do. And then when you're in the school, I'll never forget, we went to this one school, Bald Eagle Area High School, and I had one appointment. We stayed in that school for six hours, and we met with eight other people, and I signed a whole bunch of business that ended up being with me for a really long time, and he's like, man, don't be scared. He's like, just hang out in the office, and then go see another teacher, and like, ask that teacher to take you over to this teacher, and like, 
you know, it's all about like, are you just scared to do stuff or are you just going to, are you going to do what it takes to win? And he taught me a lot of those sorts of lessons in real time in person. Wow. Six hours on one sales call, huh? Yeah, dude. We just went from teacher to teacher, classroom to classroom, band to the science teacher to the shop guy to, you know, the football coach. And we, I mean, I, I ended up not meeting everybody in that school that day, I think. And like I said, I signed a whole bunch of business and a whole bunch of customers that stayed with me my whole entire time I was at, at that company. Yeah, that's, that's incredible. So I think the one thing that stands out the most, right, is, is, is having a plan, right? Mm. So many people, I think, struggle with having a good plan, getting buy-in from their team on the plan, and you know, managing their time well enough to execute on the plan. What are some things as a sales leader um, that have worked for you of getting your team to commit and stick to the plan. Yeah. Um, listen, planning is hard for a lot of salespeople. I'd say there's, well, there's two types of salespeople generally. One is the, I plan more than I actually sell and I never actually sell to my plan. <laughs> and the other one is, is I sell and don't plan. And like it's planning gets away of my selling. And you know, what you're trying to create is somebody that is, you know, in the context of their strengths and their personality, where along that spectrum do they need to lie? Because we know that both selling and planning are productive behaviors, but like, how do you find the balance for a person? And so there's certain things that you need to figure out and that should be part of the system that a company gives you. Like, what accounts do I go after? You know, what does my typical day or week need to look like? Like, how many meetings do you think I'm supposed to have? You know, how many opportunities can I have open in my pipeline at once before I can change my prospecting behavior and stuff like that? And so I've worked with a lot of reps on how do you create your overall territory plan? That's like, you know, I got all these accounts in my territory and we always have, I have a saying that, you know, uh, focus brings intentionality and intentionality helps you succeed. You can't be intentional if you don't have focus. And if you're never, not intentional, then success is just luck. Right. And so that's what we try to do is create like a, a workable plan that allows you to say, this is overall how I'm going to attack my territory. And now that I understand each kind of bucket or tranche of accounts I want to go after, what level of planning do I need to have in order to attack those really well? Like a second tier of accounts probably doesn't need the account plan. They just need to brute force automation, get in and figure it out. And they're valuable to get in, but not valuable enough to be intentional about versus your top tier accounts need to have a level of intentionality and thoughtfulness because there's enough value there to create the to create the need to have the work of planning. Versus if you just do those scattershot, you might blow a whole bunch of really high valuable accounts. So that's kind of a general way that I've helped reps figure it out. There's specifics of account plans, territory plans, you know, we used to call, we used to have like, you know, what's my plan to my number? And we'd figure that out. And those all kind of vary, but the gen, that's the general gist of how I think about it. I'm going to, I'm going to take on the, the bait that you threw out there just because you're speaking my love language a little bit, but you mentioned different personality types of sellers. How do you approach, you know, leading different people with different types differently? Yeah, I think that the first thing is important is what are the non-negotiables? Like I require hard work. I want you to work hard. I want, and then that doesn't mean put in the time, but it means like, doesn't mean like work on the weekends. 
What it means is, is I pay you a very competitive salary to work nine to five for me. Need you engaged and give me your best work from nine to five, right? The time outside of that, you can use however you want to, right? Some people need it. Some people don't. I don't care. But I, I do expect like a non-negotiable as work. The other thing is I expect you to be like naturally curious. Like, do you just like take everything at face value? Whatever, right? So I, you define these non-negotiables that are part of the culture that you want to have as a sales leader. And then, uh, you know, and this is like a bad analogy. It's like sales leadership is in some ways like parenting. And what I've, I have four kids. I have, I think I've raised my kids well. I'm very proud of the people that they are. And three of them are in college. One of them is uh, just entering their sales career now as an SDR uh, starting in, uh, in the next few weeks. So like, I th feel like I've raised really good, productive, positive, fun kids that are turning into great adults. But here's the deal is, is like, if you uh, give the uh, kids guide rails, they're infinitely creative inside those guide rails. If they have no guide rails, then they just are searching for the guide rails all the time and they don't, they never kick into creativity. It's really is the paradox of choice. If I give you a closet column with a thousand shirts, thousand pairs of pants, thousand pairs of shoes, you always walk out of the closet thinking you could have picked a doper outfit. But if there's like two pairs of pants, two shoes and two shirts, you can walk out being like, I picked the dopest thing, right? And so that's where I think like uh, rep personality comes in is, is like create the guide rails and hire people that are willing to work in those guide rails. And then that's where you can get infinitely creative and you need to have a diverse team that approaches the problems in different ways so that you can all learn from each other and represent the people that you're going to be selling to. But like, that's how I deal with personalities is get some guide rails and then, Hey, let's figure out what works for you inside of those. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just laughing here because, uh, I have four kids and, uh, the, 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 the outfit analogy, <laughs> I understand that painfully too well. Paradox <laughs> of choice, man. It's a real bitch. Yeah. Yeah. I've got three girls, so I'm, I'm in for it. <laughs> Just kind of high level, you know, what are you think are some non-negotiables as a sales leader to be a great leader? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I'm going to tell you one that I think that the majority of sales leaders actually don't have, and it might be why people don't like working for them is the first non-negotiable, you got to like enjoy people. Like, do you like hanging out with people? Do you like interacting with people? Like, you know, I think to be a sales leader, like you're going to interact with customers, you interact with your team, interact cross departmentally. Like you are taking a people forward type of role. Like in, I could juxtapize that with like a, a product leader. A product leader is more introspective and thinking, and they can do a lot of high quality work by themselves in a focused manner. A salesperson can't do anything by themselves because it at least requires the buyer, right? And it probably requires like some supporting functions and, you know, learning from enablement and all that kind of stuff. And so you don't get to do anything by yourself as a seller. And so a sales leader, the number one non-negotiable to me is you have to be a people first person, somebody that enjoys people. Um, the second non-negotiable to me, it revolves around credit. I could care less if people give me credit, but I will kill you if you steal my credit. And so like, listen, I think the same way for other people. If somebody comes up with an idea that changes how we do discovery call, I will give them all the credit in the world. If somebody, you know, does something really awesome in a prospecting thing, I'll give you all the credit. If a marketer 
creates a new message for us, I'm going to give them all the credit, right? And I think that as a leader, like you need to make sure that you give give credit all the time and don't need it, right? But like at the same time, don't let people steal credit. You know, there's a large portion of the sales population that enjoys recognition as a reward more than money. If you don't operate in that truth, then you're going to turn off all those people, right? Some other non-negotiables is I think you have to be like a teacher and a slash inspirer. Like you, I t- people always ask me, how do I get to be a leader? You have to understand how you win, create a process around it, and be able to teach people that process. That is the the number one rule I have for leadership is efficacy, the ability to affect change. If you can't change someone's mindset, somebody's behaviors, somebody's results, then why are you a leader? That's the whole point of it. And the main way I think you do that is through teaching and inspiring. The best way to teach and inspire is to understand how it works for you or how it works. Have a process that you can, or framework you can teach people. And then make sure that you are able to teach that people in a way that gets them to want to change. And so like, I think that that's like the biggest component of leadership is be that teacher inspirer, not the dictator that is saying, this is how you have to do it. A great teacher, you know, I was just working with my son on a math test and his teacher's like, you have to do it this way. And my son just wasn't getting it. And I was like, well, let's do it another way. So my teacher says, like, listen, man, like I see what you're saying, but like in the exam, she's not watching how you're doing it. She wants to see you get the right answer. And I taught him just a different way of doing it. And he got it and did a great job on, felt like main thing is I don't even know how he did on the exam. I don't even care. What I know is he's super confident now about how to deal with that kind of problem because he has a way that he understands. And I think that that's how uh, sales leaders need to be in general. Yeah, that's a great example too, because I think it's too often some sales leaders um, think that, you know, there's one way to get the job done and it's not necessarily the case. So I love that example of, hey, you know, you maybe think you're supposed to do it this way, but finding a way that you understand better or is more tailored to, you know, where you're going to find success. So I love that. Um, and those are some great. Well, the thing though, because like, let me give you an example. I believe that the key to conversion is a stage-based deal management. You have to have a sales process with stages. Each stage has to have clear exit criteria that you need to accomplish to move to the next stage. Now, people might say, Mark, that's, that seems like, not moldable. It seems a little bit too micromanaging. It seems too directive. And it can be, all right. But here's the re- here's the problem. If I don't have my entire team selling the same way, the data becomes inconsistent and unusable. And so now I have to coach each individual person individually to get whatever. That's not scalable. What I need to have is is like in general we work this way. These are the things that we do. How you get there can be different and effective for you, but you need to get there, right? You can't go someplace else. Like you, if our exit criteria for stage one is identify business initiatives, you can't, you can't go figure out like what they, what their, you know, preferences are because we don't, then you're doing something different than everybody else. And the data now becomes meaningless. And I can't say, Hey, the whole team is struggling from stage three to stage four, Let me go put a program in to improve stage three to stage four conversion that'll help everybody. Or, hey, everybody's doing good, but this one person's doing it wrong. Let me show you what the other people are doing to do better. 
And so infinite creativity happens within the guide rails. But if you, if you're just kind of like, Hey, whatever works for you, man, like, you know, um, (laughs) you know what, like that, that's what, that's how you get to eternal life. I don't have eternity to get sales results. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Mark, thanks so much for coming on, man. Any final thoughts? And then where's the best place for people to follow you or get into your world? Yeah, listen, I think uh, when it comes to sales leadership, um, there's people that know that they want to go there. There's people that don't know they want to go there, but should be there. And there's people that don't even think about it as an option, right? And I think really what it comes down to is I would not think of sales leadership as a progression of your maturation of the mastery of sales. And if you really love the craft of sales, you should figure out what your expression of mastery is. It could be, and I've met people like this, that their mastery is they're the best technical and, and you know, mental sales person ever. They don't need to be a leader. They just want to be in more and more deals and work deals because that's what they love and have complete freedom. And so, listen, I would say for sales leadership, don't view it as like I go from this to this to this to this and now I'm a sales leader and then I go to this to this and now I'm a VP or whatever. That's not really what it's about. Like if you're in sales, find out what you love about sales. What is mastery of that look like for you? And then go master that in that way. And F everybody who doesn't think that that's the right career progression. Like that's what would be my number one thing. Don't end up in sales leadership because you're a great rep. End up in sales leadership because you want to be a great sales leader. Where can you find me? So uh, I do a lot of stuff on LinkedIn. And then I did just, I had, I had a, after doing, uh, I think in the last two years, I'm, I'm now pushing close to 20 million views on my LinkedIn content. And uh, I've had people clamoring, asking me for me to like take all of the little posts, put them into a course and then make that course available. So um, I partnered with a guy named Andrew Mewborn. And we created something called the Digital Sales Collective. It's digitalsalescollective.com. And we just launched our first course uh, and it's going really, really well. And that course is on how to do deal winning discovery. So you can see the techniques that I have taught people that have worked for me. And I have dozens of top earners at some of the baddest ass companies in the world and also managers that have learned these techniques to advance their sales career and earn more money. And so those are now available in that course at the digitalsalescollective.com. Awesome. We'll drop the links there in the show notes. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Authentic Sales Leader Podcast. If you enjoyed the show, the best way to share your gratitude is to share the show or drop us a review on your favorite podcast app. Until next time, keep it authentic.